is really good to be here. Uh, when he was talking about the visitors, I was almost certain he was talking about me because obviously this is my first time being here. Um, there, are, there are a few of you that I know from Peach Valley. Great to see you guys again. Um, you know, we, we spent some time laboring and trying to, to, to learn about servanthood and teaching that to the kids too. And um, there are several servant leaders that we had from Graber Road that just did a phenomenal job. Um, just, just some of the most remarkable young men and women that I've met. Um, it, it's, it's great getting to do that with all of you. And for those of you that I don't know, looking forward to having some time to get to know all of y'all after, after this time. So just thank you all for, for being here and um, prayerfully we'll have some good study tonight. In this Stronger Together series, from what I understand, we're covering different churches, especially those that have been talked about in the book of Revelation, those seven churches of Asia, and the things that Jesus commends those churches for, and the things that Jesus does not commend those churches for. Uh, there's a lot to say for every congregation that's mentioned here, and at several points, Jesus will say, I know your works, and names the good things, and then there are some not-so-great things that come after that, and Thyatira is certainly no exception. There's a lot of historical context I could give, but I'd rather start with this question um, as we start with this topic. When it comes to the church, whose opinion really matters? Whose opinion really matters, God's or, or ours? Many will offer their judgments. Many have their opinions on what exactly that looks like. And what every single one of these responses we're going to talk about um, goes over it is it, it it's very um, it's very reminiscent of the idea that God's opinion is going to perfectly match our own, right? That God's standard ought to be ought to be um, just matching ours because apparently He's dependent on us for our wisdom, right? Because we have so much of it to give. But what reasons are ordinarily given for people's approval of churches? I'm even reminded of uh, Rick Warren's uh, experiment that he did so long ago where he went and basically asked people, what do you want in a church? That was his, that was his whole thing. Um, and he, the way that he set up his own congregation was based on those findings. He was asking people what they want in a church and was making that happen. It's an interesting study, but it's also really sad, right? But, but, but what kinds of things do people normally say? You know, that church really, really just loves on people. You just feel so welcome. You feel like family. It, it's just a great thing. Is that bad? No, not at all. That, that's, a, that's a really good thing. Uh, how about another idea? That church really, really loves God. They are so zealous. They're so sincere. You can just tell their, their worship is so heartfelt. Their prayers are so are so dignified. You can tell these people are talking to God all the time. It's just a wonderful, beautiful thing. Is that bad? No. How about this church really loves to serve people? We have the soup kitchens, we have the, 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 the clothes, uh, the clothing drives, and we have all these great programs that are happening. It's just this church is just really all about other people. Maybe I'm redundant at this point, but is that bad? No. Or this one that's, that's especially popular, I think. You know, this church is doing really, really well. They've been through a lot of, of tough things, but the fact that they're still around today shows that God's hand is placed on them. That could be the case, right? But as we're going to talk about, it's not necessarily true. These are marks of a seemingly good church, but how would God respond to each of these rationales? 
well, to the person who says, well, that church just really, really loves people so much, God would probably say that love can be handled wrongly, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 2 gives us this scenario where there's this man who's committing this sexual immorality that is not even known among pagans. It's this, it's this man taking his father's wife. And, and Paul is just blown away by that. And what he says in verse 2 is, and you're arrogant. Now, why would he say that? Are they arrogant about someone else's sin? Are they on his side? No, I think what we learn contextually is these people were probably being prideful in the fact that they hadn't disfellowshipped this brother. They were probably prideful in thinking, we love this man so much that we're just not willing to give him up. And then Paul instead says, give him away to Satan for now so that hopefully he'll come back. That's different from what the Corinthian church was apparently thinking. But love can be handled wrongly. To the person who says that church just really loves God, they're so sincere, they're so zealous, they just, they just are so heartfelt in everything that they do, I think God would say that sincerity is not necessarily a sign of faithfulness. Sincerity is not necessarily a sign of faithfulness. Romans 10 verses 1 through 2 gives us some insight here. Paul in verse 1 talks about how he wishes that, how he's, he's lamenting the Jews' spiritual state because they're not receiving this message that he's been giving but in verse 2, he says something really interesting. He says that they have zeal, but not according to knowledge. It's a zeal that's wrongly informed. And I think sometimes we don't consider that as a possibility. We just think, well, as long as the person's sincere, they must be rightly informed in their love for God. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And so if Paul there teaches me anything, it's that, Sincerity doesn't necessarily mean the best news for a church. To the person who says that church just really serves others, it's a beautiful thing, they're doing such great work for God's people, they're following Galatians 6.10 to the T, I think God would say that service is incomplete without total submission to God, without total submission to his word. I mean, you look at James chapter 1, it's very intriguing in this regard. Because you have verses 19 through 21 that talk about receiving the word of God, the implanted word with meekness and with humility and not receiving it with anger, not, not responding with vitriol to the message being preached. But in that same remote context in verse 27, that's where we see, verses 26 through 27, that's where we see what pure and undefiled religion is before God. And it's basically being present for those who really, really need help orphans, widows, whoever's in need, but verses 19 through 21 have to be considered there because it's service that's rightly informed. It's service that is for the right reason and they're not losing sight of the laws of God in their service. That's really important seeing, the, seeing that, that contrast in James 1. But what about the person who says, well, that church is doing really well. They're doing a great job, and they've, they've been through so much. Maybe they've been flooded before. Maybe they've got rod before, but God's allowed them to come on back, and they're, and they're good to go. Again, not necessarily great news. Prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's approval, right? This is of a person or of a congregation. Matthew 5, 44 through 45, I mean, we see this language of that God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? It's God can allow good things to happen 
to bad people. He can allow bad things to happen to good people. It's, it's irrespective of the person's moral status because really we all are in need of Christ. But again, prosperity is not a sign of that. There are a few uh, congregations uh, or churches of their own, of their own will um, not too far away from us right now that could probably say, you know, I've got this Roman Colosseum for a church building, and that must just be because I'm just doing such great work, right? I'm just, I'm really glorifying God in what I'm doing. Not necessarily. I'm not trying to disparage the fact that God blesses his people, because that is true. But there are several people who could look at their private jets and look at their, um, and look at their salary and say, oh, God is really blessing me. People in the state of Texas, we all know, and we know that that's not the case. We know that their, that their prosperity is not necessarily a sign that God approves of what they're doing or approves of what they're preaching. The final test of God's approval for any church is whether God's word is being followed. The final test of whether God approves of a church is whether his word's being followed. And there are a couple of, there are a few things to note here too when we come to that conclusion. I think in the first place, we recognize that God does not split love and doctrine like we do today. The idea of separating the teaching of love and the teachings of, of what we do in worship and what we do in the home, that's a relatively new concept to separate those two things. Very often we, we see people accuse the church of either overemphasizing love to the expense of doctrine or overemphasizing doctrine to the expense of love. And sure, maybe we have to work on our balance. I, I, I don't disagree that we're all imperfect and we're trying to work on how balanced we are. But at the same time, in John 13, verses 34 through 35, he says to the disciples that this new greatest commandment that he gives to them is that they love one another and that they would be recognized by the world as Jesus' disciples, verse 35, for their love for each other. And then just a chapter later in John 14 and verse 15, that's where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In the same lesson, in the same speech, he communicates that love is done by by submitting to your fellow man and treating them as, as more significant than yourself, Philippians 2, and is communicated in following the commandments of God, which, of course, loving your fellow man is one of those commandments. These aren't separate ideas. In the second place here, we must hold to the traditions that Scripture has told us to uphold. Again, we're not breaking any new ground tonight, surprise, surprise, but... Um, God's word is very clear. We have to hold to what he said. There are several passages that I could quote for this, but 2 Thessalonians 2.15 was pretty on the mark about it. Just, just the, 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 the letters to the Thessalonian church continually talk about how these people received the word of God as the word of God. They didn't just take it as the word of Paul, just some guy. They took it as the word of God, and as such, Paul continually reminds them, including in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, to hold to these doctrines, to hold to these things that Paul has taught. Now to sort of transition to where we're going to be heading to with Thyatira, um, a third point of emphasis I would, I would say when it comes to 
God's final stamp of approval being in, in how well a church has followed his word, we have to protect ourselves from those who would say that these traditions don't matter. We have to protect ourselves from people who say that these teachings don't matter. I don't say that to be unkind to anybody, but when I look at 2 John 9 through 11, I think, it, I think that's worth turning to if we all could just go there for a second. When I was first um, learning in the faith and was trying to count the cost, so to say, and uh, figure, out, um, figure out whether I um, would submit to Jesus' message, I read this and it just blew my mind. 2 John 9 through 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What he's saying is you have to hold to what Jesus has taught. And very often this passage is undermined by saying, well, this is just about the, the divinity of Christ. This is just about his, his divine and human nature. This is just about, this is just about that he was a historical person. I, I, I don't agree. And the reason why is because you don't believe in someone unless you believe you can trust them. You, you don't believe in God unless you believe in his authority over your life. If Jesus gave his entire life for me, I must give all of my life for him, right? I don't, I don't have a choice in that matter. Well, I do have a choice, but I have one right choice, let me say it that way. We have to protect ourselves from those who would say that these doctrines don't matter. And it's not saying, okay, well, you, you can never communicate with these people because otherwise how do we teach them, right? But it's to say a general disposition of you're saying these things, I'm setting a boundary. I, I'm not going to walk into a situation where I could be fed these lies. It's saying that the doctrine of God is more important than anything else. And why is that exactly? Because we're going to be judged by Jesus and his word. John 12, 48, we, we know that one, but again, it's, it's very difficult to deny when Jesus outright says that it is by my word you will be judged on the last day, right? And as we start to transition to Revelation chapter 2, we see this image in, in verse 18 where when it says his eyes are that of a flaming fire, it's, um, it's the way we can, we can understand that is it's these eyes of, of exposure and of judgment. Um, he, he's discerning. He's sharp. Nobody can fool God. I think sometimes, I think sometimes people can, can think that they can fool God, but they can't. And so we've set the stage for a while now, but I want to start mainly as we go into the text itself by saying that Thyatira was doing a lot right. Look in verse 19 in Revelation 2. They were doing a lot right. It says, I, I know your works, your, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Some of those things we talked about at the very beginning, right? They really love people. They're, they're really faithful. They're really zealous. They love serving people. They've been through a lot. It's those kinds of things. And the reason that I, you know, probably ad nauseum mentioned the question of, is this a bad thing? Is because I want us to recognize these are people who want to follow God's direction. And this was evident in what they did and what they believed. They were complimented for things that 
we would certainly want to mirror. I mean, who here doesn't want to be seen as a loving, faithful, and enduring servant of God? Any, any takers? I'm not the one. <laughs> I, I think we all can understand that, that it, is, it is a positive thing to have love, faith, service, and steadfastness. But they had one major problem in verse 20, one major problem. This I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Their major problem was false teaching. And it's from that lens we're going to take the rest of this, and it hopefully makes more sense why we set the stage for the time that we did. Think of it this way. You're, you're buying a house, you, you walk in, you're touring around, you've, you've, you've felt how comfortable the, the bed is, for example, you've, you've seen how great the kitchen is, everything just looks immaculate, the interior design is just, it's just amazing. But what if there's like just this stench going through the AC the whole time that you're there, and the person who's there giving you this tour says, you know, yeah, a, a skunk came by and and sprayed into the AC. We can't really do anything about it, so you'd be stuck with this for a while. We don't really know when we'd be able to do anything on it. How are you feeling about that house right now? If, if everything else is perfect, but there's that one thing, that one smell, no matter how subtle it is, you don't want that. I don't want to sleep feeling like I'm having to breathe in skunk every time I inhale. And, and, and that's a... That's a a very um, silly example for what we're talking about here, but even if something is, to our understanding, subtle, shouldn't we still take it seriously in our decision of whether we commit to that thing? I think when we look at this, it's very easy to say, oh, well, Jesus only had one problem with them. You know, Jesus only had one thing they needed to correct. Well, one verse is dedicated to the things that they were doing right, and then there are another, like, five or six about what they needed to, to do better. Uh, so if, if that weren't enough to, to dispel that, false teaching really is that bad. It really is that bad. But let's talk about that for a minute. Is false teaching really that big of a problem? Is it really that big of a deal? Is it really a problem at all? And we'll go through some responses to that. Um, and again, I'm not saying these things as, um, as a person who's on some pedestal. I'm saying this as a person who said this in the past. It's just a difference of interpretation, right? Uh, that, that's a common one. It's, it's, it's not false teaching. It's just they're reading this differently than you do. Second uh, Timothy 2.15 has something to say about that, that we have to rightly handle the word of truth. And it, if we are saying, oh, well, that just means hold on to the word with reverence and know who, who wrote it and treat it with love? Why do the following verses talk about false teachers? Verse 18 calls them by name. It's clearly saying that I'm teaching you, Timothy, to rightly handle the word of truth because there are a lot of people who aren't. And if that weren't enough, 2 Peter 3.16, it, it shows... It shows Peter just very bluntly saying people are twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. The writings of Paul, they're twisting them. And we're not talking about a rubber band that can just be twisted practically infinitely. We're talking about the word of God. It's, it's, it's solid. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> you should not do that. But Peter is showing it is possible to twist the word of God to your own destruction. And that certainly is impossible if it's impossible to misinterpret it. Here's another thing that I used to say. 
we can't really know everything anyway. You know, his ways are higher than my ways, true. Um, there are things that he understands that I, that I will never understand, true. But maybe, you know, tell me if you heard this one before. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, Ephesians 3 and verse 4. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5, 17. Paul says in Colossians 1 and verse 9 that he wants people to have all of these pieces of knowledge. And that message is repeated everywhere. Jude 3, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And what about 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10? Maybe we don't always quote it for this purpose, but the purpose of the chapter is to show, along with love being the greatest gift that one can hold, it shows that there are all these methods of partial revelation that exist and that there's one perfect form of revelation, the one that we all have now. We don't have to guess anymore. We, we, we have it. We can't really know everything anyway. It's, it's, it's just not a true statement. Um, or at least these things pertain to our doctrine, the things that we need to know for our day-to-day -day life. I don't see how God could judge us by his word if it's impossible to understand what it's saying. But what about this one? And this is especially where we're at right now with Thyatira. Well, that's just a problem for denominations, not the Lord's church. Maybe we don't say that one out loud, but I think sometimes we treat it that way. We are so ready to go to war with the Baptists and the Methodists and the Catholics and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the other ones with very long, complicated names. We, we can go on and on about them, but then when there's error infiltrating the church, we just let it go because, well, at least it's the church. That's a problem out there. It's not a problem in here. That's not Jesus. That is not Jesus. Romans 16, 17 through 18 is very clear about this too. Um, Romans 16, 16, you know, we, we love that verse. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you, right? It, it's, it's a great verse, and, and, we, and we appreciate it for good reason, but look what verses 17 through, through 18 say right after that. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So even in this passage about how great it is to be a Christian, basically, he says, all right, it's great to be a Christian. Salute those who are among you in brotherhood, but be very careful for the ones who are trying to destroy you. Is false teaching really a problem? Let me just forthrightly say, false teaching is always problematic. Always. There, there will never be a situation where false teaching is a good thing. Ever. It always leads to bitter fruit. That's what Matthew 7, 15 through 20 is all about. Even when Jesus curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It's a symbolic action representing what, the, what, the, what these religious leaders were doing. It, it's showing they're supposed to be bearing fruit with the authority they've been given, but they're not. And instead, they're spreading falsehood to people that I love. God's not okay with that. It looks, you know, this fruit, it may look good to eat, but it's bitter. It tastes terrible. There's no sugar in it. It's an awful thing. 
But it always leads to division as well. It always leads to division every single time. And Proverbs 6.17 is very clear in saying that God hates that. He hates it. Maybe I, un- I misunderstand the language of statements like we need to be perfectly joined together. Or maybe I misunderstand things like being united in the same mind and the same judgment. But if I am understanding God correctly, his will is that we would be perfectly joined. Let them be one as you, you, Father, and I are one, Jesus prayed, right? That seems like such a lofty goal, and yet that's, that's what he wills. And it's not impossible if he prayed it. And also, it just always leads to unrighteousness. Always. False teaching always leads to impurity, unrighteousness, immorality. Every, every synonym for that, it leads to it. Romans 1, 20 through 32, it lists these sins. It shows what's happened since God has given these people up to a debased mind. But in verse 32, it shows this isn't just about the people who are, who are doing these things. It's about the people who permit them to do it. And furthermore, it's about the people who, who approve of it, right? Even after Stephen is stoned, we see that Saul, what does it say? It, he approved the execution, right? Approval is a dangerous thing as well. Let me also note that, that this always leads, false teaching always leads to false worship. You look at Colossians 3 and verse 5 when we're told to put to death the things that are earthly in us. And then verse 17 shows that we need to do all things by the authority of Jesus Christ. What Colossians 3 and verse 5 says, basically, is if we don't put these things to death, these products of that are idolatry. That, that's its wording, is idolatry. And so the question that that verse, compared with verse 17, presents us with is, are we acting by the authority of ourselves or by the authority of Christ? Who, for whom am I living? And this one is the one that's always, I think, the one that we should be the most concerned about, for sure. Um, it, it always leads to a loss of souls, every time. Every time. People think, oh, well, it's okay, you know, this is just the new fad, it'll go away soon. No. There is always at least one person who goes astray with, with that garbage that's taught, and before you know it, that's a soul that's gone. Why do we permit that? And we're going to see that that's what Jesus is going to tell the church at Thyatira. But Matthew 7, uh, 21 to 23, again, verse that we commonly quote talking about uh, denominationalism, right? And we, and we commonly talk about how um, not everyone who, who professes religion is religious in the sight of God, Right? And, and, and that's true. I'm not undermining that. But Matthew 5, um, in that chapter, Jesus was talking to citizens, um, to, well, to forthcoming citizens of the kingdom of God. He was, giving, he was giving the attributes of kingdom people. By Matthew 7, has he switched audiences yet? He's, yes, I'm sure, speaking to in principle, the truth that we can't just teach and do whatever we want and expect to be approved by God. But he's, he's, he has not stopped talking to the believers yet. And that hurts every time I, I recognize that. Um, 
it always leads to a loss of souls. For the rest of our time, I think Jesus points out a few things about how false ideas are spread in Revelation 2. And we're going to be going from verse 20 here, but, but just to outline them quickly, we're, it's the fact that false ideas need a few things. They need advocates. They need an appeal of some kind. They need time slash tolerance. And on top of all of that, they need a lack of vigilance or discernment. They need people who don't know what's going on, basically. And we're going to just spend some time talking through each of these because each of these ideas is present within this text. So let's just read Revelation 2.20 for a moment and we'll jump into that. It says, if I can turn to it properly, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's a lot. That is a lot that's laid out right there. But what's the first thing that a false idea needs? It needs advocates, right? Did you know that Christians are not the only ones that have a great commission? Evil also has a great commission of some sort. In, in Thyatira's case, and in, in Jezebel's case, I suppose, it means deceiving God's servants. Evil's agenda is to, to deceive disciples of all nations, right? Not to make them. Evil has its own agenda. But, but what are these advocates usually like? Well, Matthew 7.15 shows that they look and sound harmless, but in all reality, they're incredibly dangerous. In 3 John 9-10, through 10, it shows that they present themselves as logical, but they're actually full of nonsense. I don't say that to, to, um, to make a joke out of this. It's just genuinely, it, it's nonsensical. Um, we see the disciples being rejected by people who probably thought they were in the right, but they weren't. And John tells them to watch out for those individuals. But then this is true also, and I don't want to belabor this because I know that this isn't exactly what's being discussed here, but it's worth mentioning that false, false ideas come from people who preach one message and oftentimes live another. Uh, um, Matthew 23 and verse 2 is really important with this because we often misunderstand exactly what the problem with the Pharisees was. And it was indeed that they were placing these barriers around the law. It, it is true that they weren't being loving and considerate, but what Jesus says there is... Basically, do as they say, but not as they do. The, 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 the message is, you should follow what they're saying, because some of what they're saying is right, but don't follow their manner of life, because it's full of hypocrisy. They may preach one message, but they live another. But these advocates of false ideas, they, they are needed to get a false idea off the ground. Right? There is no idea in all of history that has just stayed within the mind of a single person and made a difference. And that is true for a good idea and a bad idea. It's true for both sides of that. It's, it's irrespective. Um, yeah, it's irrespective of people and who's involved. The second thing that false ideas need in order to spread is appeal. It's appeal. Um, you may notice, and I'm sure you do, that so many false teachings have some nugget of truth to them. Something in them that, that's, that's appealing or even right. Some of them may say, well, God can accept any kind of worship because he's loving. 
okay, the second part of that, yeah, God is loving. God is so loving. You know, God will accept any kind of worship because he wants us to worship him. That's true. He seeks such people to worship him, people who are willing to worship in spirit and in truth. It's true. But does that mean he accepts everything? No. There are nuggets of truth in every false teaching that's out there, unless they're just completely off the rails, and even then there's some traction that's gained. But Jezebel first deceived these people into practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. It's immorality and idolatry, all wrapped up in one terrible package. But she didn't make them do these things. Let me clarify what I'm meaning by that. I'm saying that she was not threatening them and saying, if you don't do this, then, then I'm going to kill you. That, 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 that still might have been a sentiment in some sense uh, during that point, but not seemingly from what we have in Jezebel. What we instead have is someone who was able to convince them. This wasn't a threat, this was coercion. How exactly? She probably enticed them with plausible arguments, Colossians 2 and verse 4. Right now, now, why plausible? Why does Paul say it that way? To be plausible doesn't mean that an idea is right. It simply means that for this person who has not have their, had their skills of discernment trained, that's the way Hebrews 5.14 would phrase it, it seems reasonable. It seems likely. And we can all be, be, be in danger of this. So let me make sure I'm being balanced in that. If we are not studying, we can all be under threat of falling for that trap. But again, plausible arguments doesn't mean that they're right arguments. It could also be that, that, he, that she was claiming that God revealed these things to her. I mean, verse 20 does say that she calls herself a prophetess, right? And what does 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21 show us? It's don't despise every prophecy, but verse 21, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. In 1 John 4, 1, similar message, um, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, Right? Test the teachings as you're hearing them. Be like the noble Bereans in Acts 17. Hear what's being said and make sure that it's truly, authentically from the word of God. But also, she likely promoted these teachings as deeper knowledge. Verse 24 in Revelation 2 is really interesting here because it says the, the deep things of Satan, as, as they say. Um, depending on what your translation is, you might see deeper things um, with quotes just... Uh, just around deeper things. You may see it around deeper things of Satan as the full name of that. The idea here is this, she was probably promoting this as an idea that was with some kind of philosophical depth. Um, sorry, depth. And as a result of that, God is showing us, well, she's calling these the deeper things, but they're really the deeper things of Satan. These aren't the deeper things of pure and undefiled religion. These are the deeper things of Satan and his, and his schemes. I think we see that in 2 Timothy 3, this idea of constant learning without any knowledge, right? When I was talking to, to John Baker about this, um, I, I forget the original guy that he got this from, but he mentioned that some people have, he called it a thirst for distinction. A thirst for distinction. And I love that phrasing, but if we constantly thirst for distinctiveness, we are always going to end up parched. Every time. It's a fair rule of thumb, and some people are going to hate that I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a fair rule of thumb that if, that if someone claims to understand the text in a way that's never been understood that way before, 
in over 2,000 years of study, chances are it's probably wrong. It's probably not correct. I'm not saying that there might be, that there aren't like some new interesting tidbits that might come out or, or some new archaeological findings that can come up. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that there may not be a new way to, um, to preach about it or something, a, a different method of, of, of giving exposition of that text or something. But again, if it's a completely new idea, it's probably wrong. And at some point during church history, it was probably rejected for a reason. It's not original. Error isn't an original thing. The worst thing that we can do is allow ourselves to be convinced by false teaching. And so just as Israel was led astray by Queen Jezebel, Thyatira had been led astray by an individual who God calls by that same name for a reason. It's a person of the same type of character. I'm not naming my daughter Jezebel, but God made it very clear that this person is effectively being Jezebel in the way that she's living and leading people astray. The third thing that's needed for a false idea to spread is time or tolerance. We read a lot about how to rightly handle tolerance and forbearance. I mean, we look at the example of Jesus tolerating, you know, and, and, and I don't mean tolerating even in a begrudging way, just, just tolerating. Um, he gives the disciples time to grow, does he not? Um, we ought to tolerate those also who would accept counsel from us. So when Apollos accepts the counsel of Aquila and Priscilla, we talk about Aquila and Priscilla there all the time, but you know how much humility they must have taken for Apollos to say like, ah, oh, okay, you're right. But he was willing to do that. And there's a sense in which, yeah, we ought to tolerate the world in a sense because we ought not be surprised by their behavior. Um, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, I think, would remind us to, uh, to not be too shocked and to especially look towards what's happening within the brotherhood. Because, of course, the world's going crazy. It's the world. That's what it's there for. But when the church starts acting crazy, when the world starts infiltrating the church, that's where we have a problem. But Thyatira's case here was, is, it's a case study in how to wrongly handle forbearance and tolerance, right? As again, it says you tolerated, you allowed, you permitted Jezebel. So first, just, just, let's just note, we ought not tolerate arrogance. We ought not tolerate arrogance. When she calls herself a prophetess and claims to be speaking by God's authority, that's an affront to God. And they shouldn't have tolerated that. They, and again, how would they have known that this was a false, a false prophet? By testing what she said in accordance to what had already been said. And even at that point, God would have said, you know, this is a pretty simple problem. Just test what she's saying, and they probably didn't, which led to this spiral. I would also say we ought not tolerate those who are leading others astray. Jezebel was deceiving God's servants, and that is obviously not okay. These are precious souls that are now at risk because we're not taking our stand and, and getting people back and responding to these false teachings, right? That, 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 that's the idea. But we also ought not tolerate, as I said before, when the world... It, when the world infiltrates the church. When the world infiltrates the church, that's not a good thing. Had Jezebel kept her teachings to herself and started some, uh, tried to just name it under some pagan religion, it would have still been terrible, don't get me wrong, but it wouldn't have gotten into the church. But she infiltrated the church and she brought those teachings with her. 
That's the problem. When a false idea is brought in, um, while we ought not be surprised, there is in fact such a thing as a ticking time bomb when it comes to false teaching. I'm not trying to be overdramatic, that's, that's just, I think, how we ought to view it. And even if there is one spiritual casualty from that, isn't that one too many? Shouldn't we do something about it regardless of, of whether it's one person or a million people? I don't, I don't know. I just, I think we take these things a little too lightly at times, myself included. Finally here, there's a lack of vigilance and discernment with all of this. A lack of vigilance and discernment. God doesn't separate the teaching from its teacher. And again, when this person is equated to Jezebel from 1 Kings 16, you know, the, the one who promoted idolatrous worship in Israel and proceeded to terrorize and kill multiple people of God. Pretty bad rap sheet. God says, you're like this person. But there is something to be said about character and intention. Again, we talked about Apollos earlier. But Jezebel was both willfully misinformed and of the wrong spirit. And that is especially why what she was doing was just altogether not okay under any circumstance. All throughout scripture we find this attitude about false teachers. We find 2 Peter 2, I mean that's just worth time for reading. I won't be able to do that now just for the sake of time. But, but that is really worth your time to consider. Galatians 1 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. Several like that. But Titus 1 and verse 9 especially it points to the responsibility of elders to protect the flock from that kind of teaching. Did Thyatira have elders that were shepherding the flock properly? I, I don't know. And, and I'm, if they were there, I, where did they go? Were they on lunch break while all this happened? God isn't okay with this kind of thing. And we ought not be okay with it either. I want to leave us with a few thoughts Please recognize that this lack of discernment and vigilance is not just exclusive to maybe Thyatira's eldership potentially. This is for every Christian. Very often I, I find that we can't discern false teaching because we don't know what the true teaching is. We're not reading. And so how in the world am I supposed to be, how, is, how in the world am I supposed to know what I'm looking out for for false teaching if I don't even know what the right teaching is. It's a fool's errand. We have to read if we want to be rightly informed. It's, 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 not, it's not a good thing. If we can understand why leaving a door unlocked to your home with all your valuable possessions is a very dangerous thing, why would you leave your mind open to all kinds of bad teachings that could, that could infiltrate it? We can understand the physical example but not the mental and spiritual example sometimes. We, can un we have to understand that keeping this thing closed, this inspired book closed all the time, is spiritual suicide. That was the problem with Thyatira, I think. Jesus responds and shows, yeah, he's, he's been patient. He wills that no one would perish, but that failing to repent would result in condemnation. And that the false teacher's followers aren't exempt from that punishment either, as you look into verse 23. And to the faithful, he presents this challenge of continually being faithful. And to, and, and to them as well, he presents this reward and tells them to just keep working, keep doing what you're doing until I come back.
as we're thinking about this, just know evil is always working. Evil can infiltrate the church. Evil demands to have us. And finally, evil will lose, even if it looks bleak right now. Hold to this, and we're going to be fine. Thank you for your time.